Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Anne and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. This may come as a surprise, but bourbon is more American than apple pie. It existed before baseball, had built more roads, schools, and government infrastructure than any non-petroleum domestic product. And that's saying a lot for a style of whiskey made predominantly from corn. Today, 60% of the average bottle goes to tax, thus all of the buildings of the schools and the roads. So believe it or not, bourbon is no longer just liquor. It's a slice of America. I know it comes as no surprise that this $8 billion industry is enjoying an economic boom with lifestyle and tourism elements that the old timers like Pappy and old granddad would never have dreamt of. But the real story I love and that I want to tell today are not the big boys with the big brand names everybody knows and sells, but the entrepreneurs in the small batch world. And today we're going to meet the CEO of One Such Bourbon and Rye, Alice Peterson of Pinhook Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Now, according to Alice's website. Pinhook is lovingly handcrafted and aged in Kentucky. Pinhook has the richness of the soil, the warmth of the goldenrod, the softness of the air, and the character and manner of Kentucky horse country. And spoiler alert, I've tasted it, and as a bourbon aficionado myself, let me just say, wow. Welcome, Alice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for supporting Pinhook. I'm so glad you're a fan. Oh, I absolutely, absolutely am. So why don't we just start with the basics and tell people what is bourbon and what distinguishes it from scotch and other whiskeys? Well, contrary to popular belief, bourbon does not have to be made in Kentucky, but it does need to be made in the United States. So it's an American whiskey. What is special about bourbon versus rye or a number of other things you might see called, let's say, Tennessee whiskey, is its mash bill, which is a fancy word for recipe. And that recipe needs to contain at least 51% corn. It also has to be aged in new charred oak, meaning oak barrels that have been burnt on the inside and that have not previously been used for any other purpose and that aging has to have taken place for at least two years in order for it to be called bourbon. Tell me about the charred oak process. What's that like? So we work with a cooperage. I mean the number of businesses that exist to support this industry is is kind of incredible and you know I'm pretty new to this so still learning some of it but the char is what gives bourbon its color and its sort of smoky and caramely kind of of flavor. So the American oak typically is made into barrels at a cooperage and then the inside is charred. There are different levels of char so the most common is char number four which is what we happen to use in our barrels and that char is what makes bourbon and rye which is aged the same way distinct in the flavor profile that's created through the aging process. And it can't be called straight bourbon whiskey unless as you say it's been charred for at least two years. Unless it's been aged for two years and straight also refers to the fact that no color or added flavor 
flavor. Nothing can be added. It is the distillation of those ingredients that creates the liquor. And then the aging is what imparts the flavor as opposed to any additives that would come after that. So the New York Times recently ran a story calling the bourbon boom the Napification Syndrome, doing for American whiskey what Napa Valley did for American wine, elevating it to world-class luxury status. Fortunately, there's no Merlot in bourbon that uh, a movie can ruin. Um, That being said, I know my listeners want to hear your story. I think that's really interesting. And what drove you with a Harvard MBA, an impressive corporate world consulting background, into this beautiful brown liquid world? Well, I would love to say that, you know, I did a careful analysis of what was happening in the industry and decided that I needed to be a part of it, but I I really lucked into it. The story goes that three friends, one of whom happens to be my husband, were bourbon aficionados and just curious about what it took to you know, create what ended up in the bottle. And they all had sort of complementary skill sets. So my husband had the business background and a set of relationships in Kentucky. We had actually gotten married in Kentucky as our version of a destination wedding because we just thought that it was such a beautiful and special place. It is. Wanted to bring our family and friends. So that was Jay's background. The two other friends were Charles Fulford, who is an incredibly talented designer. And while his sort of day job job is in web design and branding strategy in the digital world. He has designed every last element of our packaging, our website, our brand. So it's been very much a do-it-yourself kind of effort. And then and then Sean Josephs, who had grown up in the restaurant business and who had taken the sommelier path, but grown a little bit sort of disenchanted with wine because it was so difficult um, to afford to participate in what was considered quality. It was sort of the, the top upper echelons. In the meantime, he had been an American whiskey drinker, and this is back, you know, in... 2007, 2008, decided to open a American whiskey-focused restaurant called Chair Number no. 4, which was in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, and one of the very first in the United States sure. with that focus. So having been in the restaurant business, having been a buyer, and was not only very curious, but also really knew a lot mm-hmm. about um, what was in the bottle and what it meant to make something that was attractive to people who would be buying it. So the three of them bought just 20 barrels of bourbon, found them at a place called MGP in Indiana, which has continued to be a source for us until very recently, and took those barrels to Kentucky and let them age. So they started releasing that whiskey. I brought you some of it to taste today. Great. Really started to get some momentum, but had very very little supply so they'd bought a few more barrels after that but they were releasing you know something like 2,500 bottles at a time really really small potatoes so they decided to actually give it a go and borrow the money that they needed to buy Mm -hmm. sort of a real inventory and right as that inventory was being released for the first time in the form of our rye here Mm -hmm. um, which I know that you've also gotten to try they kind of realized that this was a business right. and someone needed to run it. And so they invited me to do that. I knew nothing about spirits. I had a business background and had spent seven or eight years at the Boston Consulting Group. So 
while I didn't know anything about spirits, was comfortable knowing nothing about a business I was going into, had done that many times. And I had recently left a job. I'd left BCG and had been working at uh, medical centers on the the team there. And so went from one form of healthcare, the more traditional form, to, you know, more of a self-medicating kind of profession. And I... Never thought I'd do anything entrepreneurial. This was not part of my grand plan, and I am having the greatest time where it's just so much fun. And that's what it should be. It should be fun. And we've heard this story before where it wasn't necessarily, you don't just wake up and say, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, and I'm just going to find what I'm going to do. 90% of those people never succeed. The ones that succeed either have stories like this or just have some kind of a passion that just leads them in that direction. So you talk about the design, and we'll talk about the, the bottles in a moment, but let's start because this is anyone listening is saying pinhook what's a pinhook unless you're from kentucky and not familiar with pinhooking which i'm pleased to say i did know what it was but only because my wife and impressive well we took a tour on the bourbon trail a bike tour uh last year and that's where i you know was able to be kind of cool at cocktail parties but most people might not understand it so why don't you start with the sure so pinhooking is an old kentucky term i think it actually was originally used for the tobacco industry it is used to describe the business of buying baby thoroughbreds really right as they're weaned from their mothers and holding on to them and reselling them for hopefully a substantial profit when they're ready to start their racing career at usually around two years. And the idea is that when they're babies, you know their pedigree and you can think strategically about what that pedigree is likely to yield. You can take a look at them and see that they have four legs, but they're in no position to show you whether or not they have any speed. Right. And so you're using sort of your instinct um, and your knowledge and your patience, right, to wait and see what develops. The reason that we ended up calling Pinhook pinhook was because that's really what you're doing with whiskey as well. You're sort of picking your ingredients, you're picking a mash bell, you're picking a pedigree that you think will develop into something beautiful, but you have to wait and you have to be lucky because this is a natural product. You know, it's much like wine, right? Right. Where you're harvesting grains, you are distilling them, putting them in a natural product in the form of this oak. And then the rickhouses where these barrels are stored, you know, from your trip, I mean, these are not temperature controlled. This is not a scientific process. Not at all. It is all about exposing those barrels to the elements um, and letting those elements create character in the whiskey over time. Well, it's obviously working because was it earlier this year in San Francisco that the bourbon won a gold medal? We did. Our cask strength expression of bourbon country, bourbon country is the name of the course, took a gold which is meant to be, I don't remember the exact words, but basically, you know, a superb representation of of its category or something along those lines. So we'd we'd never entered a competition before. And Sean, who's our master taster, said it's too good not to. So we were pleased that others agreed. Hey, it's great to be Rookie of the Year. Yeah, that's right. it's, It's real important. So Alice, walk our listeners through the process from distilling to casking to bottling to drinking. I noticed when I was down in Kentucky with my wife a few years ago and we got to visit a number of the distilleries that how lucky it is for a bottle of bourbon to actually make it. There's so much spillage. So kind of tell us a little bit about the process. Sure. Well, we've been um, really excited because uh, we met some folks back in 2016 who 
were contemplating buying the old Colonel Taylor distillery on the big the fan of the Colonel. Big fan when of the I Colonel, <laughs> and actually, the Colonel um, is really the person who had the idea that you referred to when you talked about the napification. Oh, really? So he believed that making bourbon or making rye should not be just about a manufacturing process, but that it should be a lifestyle and a culture and that people should come and and be tourists, be part of it, just as you did. So he had built himself this incredible distillery, even a depot, so that the train could be extended and folks could take the train right there. So he built this in the late 1800s. It changed hands. It was owned by National Distilling Company. And in the 70s, it ended up being abandoned. And our friends, Will and Wes, came upon it when they were looking to do something different in their careers and ended up buying it and have spent the last several years restoring it to the original grandeur that Colonel Taylor designed it in. So we've been distilling our own bourbon with them since 2017 and next year in 2020 we'll actually get to release that put it in the bottles and have it on those shelves so it is is that castle and key is that the yep, one in frankfurt castle, right. castle okay. and key in frankfurt mm-hmm. they've renamed it so the colonel taylor brand is is owned and still in operation though not made at that distillery and right. so they've they renamed is castle castle and key and, and they're doing something you know very special there so the process that takes place down there and bringing pinhook to the shelf is the grains are delivered mm-hmm. we've selected you know the exact combination of grains and the source of those grains it's distilled over the course of 51 percent has to be corn yep ours is uh 70 percent or 75 percent this stuff is, is right. 75 so the delivered to castle and key it's distilled in these beautiful old blue stills over the course of of several days and then filtered and it is put into these charred oak barrels so we get the barrels from the cooperage already charred to our specifications and you literally fill the barrels with what looks it's like putting gas in your car Mm -hmm. so there are these you know huge tanks fill the barrels by hand and then you hammer a bung into the hole and there's your barrel the batch and all of that is branded on the end and they are taken to what's called a rickhouse a warehouse for for bourbon barrels they then in order to sample them you drill a hole Mm -hmm. and then put another little bung in that hole to replace it and we don't really know what's going to happen to that barrel when we put it down and what's amazing is that all of the barrels come out differently. So people focus a lot on, you know, where is it distilled? What is the mash bill? Those sorts of attributes. And while those things are certainly important, we know very well from our original sourcing through MGP mm-hmm. that that's really just a part of it. So where you age it, and then probably even more so, definitely even more so, how you blend it and how you proof it are really what determines the ultimate taste. And so we learned that over the course of our early batches and are really trying to celebrate that in what we're doing. So the process is that we identify a a set of barrels that we want to potentially pull from. 
and take a series of samples from all of those and then start to construct a blend. And what that means is that each barrel in our case, because we work on such a small scale, is tasted and sort of put into families or pods based on the characteristics that it embodies. So, you know, they'll typically be, you know, one pod is things that are particularly smoky, one pod is things that are particularly fruit forward, and so on and so forth. And then we start to mix those pods together. We work with a wonderful guy named Brett to do this, who is like a mad scientist mm-hmm. right. and, and a mathematician all in one. Because the precision that is required is immense in order to be able to do on this very small scale what you'll recreate on a scale that's 75 barrels, right. which is the quantity at which we produce. So once we have a blend, that is at cask strength. And and for us, usually that is somewhere around 115 proof. And then we proof it down. We do have one expression that we put out, which is cask strength. And I love drinking at that. But most people are going to want to drink their their bourbon somewhere in the 80s, 90s. It has to be at least 80 Mm -hmm. proof in order to be bourbon. So we taste it at all of these different levels. By the way, all you vodka drinkers out there, you're drinking at least 80 to 90 proof. They all think, oh, no, no, it's a clear liquid. It's not as strong. Oh, my gosh. Um, so. (laughs) So the proof matters immensely. And so this is where I think Sean's training as a sommelier has been incredibly helpful is just we're looking to create the, you know, most balanced expression with the best complexity with a long smooth finish and that plays out very differently at different proofs sort of an illustration of this is our rye so our first rye we released in 2017 and that was drinking best at 93.5 when we went to proof rye humor which was the next release in 2018 we proved it at 97. we've made a decision that is very different than how most people are making bourbon and rye, which is to each year appreciate the fact that it's natural ingredients and a natural process that creates, you know, the substrate we're working with. And just as a winemaker would for each vintage, try to create not necessarily the most consistent product, but the most beautiful product. Right. So each vintage of our bourbon and each vintage of our rye is a new blend and a new proof based on what we see before us, what we taste before us, Mm -hmm. and when we go about making that. So that's very different than most of our competitors Mm -hmm. who are really focused on creating a consistent flavor profile. And so what that often means is that they are doing things like potentially throwing away a barrel because oh, it doesn't fit. Where, right? where I noticed a lot of the spillage were at the Woodfords of the world or things like that, where they're obviously making hundreds of thousands well, and, of and bottles. And they can't possibly, right. I mean, yeah. good for them. It's a sure. great problem to have. They can't taste every single barrel. Right. So there's more of sort of a formula to it. That being said, they have sensory panels. You know, one of the big brands, and I won't say which, anecdotally has a sensory panel. Anyone in the company can audition essentially, try out to be on it. It so happens that the majority of the members are women. Apparently women have a better palate for these things than men, according to their selection. But the audition is they will set out, let's say, 10 samples of their whiskey 
one of which is, let's say, either not their whiskey or they believe is a bad batch. Mm -hmm. And the audition is about identifying the outlier correctly. Hmm. So what's interesting about that to me is that's about can you identify same, not can you identify quality, not can you identify great. Of course, that brand, you know, there are so many wonderful whiskeys out there at all different price points, truly. I'm not meaning to imply that that original flavor profile is not good. It's delicious. But it means that it's about sort of trying to rein diversity in to create the same thing every time as opposed to continuously looking to let the best characteristics come through. So that's the way that Pinhook is a little bit different in terms of our approach. So let's talk about the business now. Now, how many states do you sell the bourbon in and the rye? And maybe walk us a little bit through the sales process, because I don't think most people know how that works. And and also the marketing side, like maybe you're using social media and and what kind of marketing tools and techniques you use to stand out in a crowded field. I always go back to Seth Godin's book about the purple cow and there's all these cows in the field and there's the one purple one that's uniquely different. And you've got something You've got a purple cow here. Yes. Well, literally, the cast strength right. is our purple cow, right? And incidentally, I went to Williams College, whose mascot is the purple cow. Well. So I'm, I'm all about it. I guess two things. So from a packaging perspective, Charles did something very smart, which was he took inspiration from jockey's silks. So if you can remember a day before there were jumbotrons. Right. It's kind of hard to see your horse sure. on the back stretch. Mm-hmm. And the way that you spot it is by what the jockey's wearing. Yeah. And so jockeys wear these fa- <laughs> fabulously, yeah. you know, bright color, mm-hmm. bold geometry jerseys, essentially. And that's how you can see them. So the inspiration for our packaging comes from just that. We chose tall bottles, right. so they would stand out on the shelf. Yeah, I wish everyone could see them. I'm trying to describe the bottles as best as you can. I mean, the colors stand out. We're looking at a beautiful green. We're looking at the purple and, I guess, a light orange tangerine Yeah, color. so the bottles are shaped like wine bottles. Right. So they're tall and thin as right. opposed to short and mm-hmm. stout, which is kind of the... I mean, there's a variety in in bourbon, but there's a fair amount of short and stout. Yes, there are. And so that was the first thing. The necks and the tops of those bottles are all hand-dipped in wax. So an actual human being using a crock pot, if you can believe it, is dipping each one of these. And the colors are associated with different... um, Products. So, for instance, the cask strength, even though next year it will be a different horse on the label, it will always be purple wax, right? So it's a way of sort of, it's the uniform of this particular category. The horse denotes a family of barrels, and the illustrations of those horses are done by a woman named Noli Novak, who does all of the head cuts mm-hmm. in the Wall Street Journal, the little pointillist oh, portraits yeah. of, you know, Jamie Diamond. Yes, or like, my goal is to one day yes, keep one of those Mitch Slater. <laughs> yeah. They're really beautiful yeah. in, in and of themselves. And then there's geometry. So the geometry is meant to highlight the year. So that's how those individual attributes kind of correspond. The way that we bring it to market is 
highly, highly, highly regulated. So the spirits industry has a three-tier distribution system. We are on the first tier as a supplier. Mm -hmm. We then sell to a wholesaler or distributor who's the second tier. That second tier sells to a retailer, which can either be a on-premise retailer like a restaurant or bar or an off-premise retailer um, like a liquor store. And you can only play at one of those levels and that retailer in turn sells to consumer. So you cannot jump any of those levels and you cannot play at multiple levels. So what that means is as a supplier, I can't sell directly to a retailer and I can't sell directly to a consumer. There's good news and bad news in this. The good news is- Would you is, consider that one of the biggest challenges of the industry well, that yes you guys and, face? Yeah. Yes and no. So absolutely in that, in this world of social media, click to buy, mm -hmm. like sort of direct to consumer, right. it means that it one, I can't right. sell it right. to anyone. All of you listening, mm -hmm. go to the right. Pinhook website and guess what? You can't buy it there. Right. You have to enter your zip code and find out a liquor store. There are beautiful t-shirts and leather bags, I will There say. are, <laughs> and we have a great store finder where right. we will tell you yes. where you can buy Which it. Which is how I found my first bottle. It was really worked well. But so not only does it mean I can't sell directly, but I also don't have a lot of information then because there's so many layers. It's hard for me to figure out who's actually drinking my spirits. The good news about that system is as a startup, you know, and maybe we're probably past that phase now, but I can have a pretty lean team and still be selling in 23 states because the distributors are the ones who really are selling, right? They have the sales force. I'm not allowed to sell directly to the stores. I can go and visit as many stores as I'd like. I can go and visit as many bars and restaurants, but the order actually has to be taken by a distributor. And so by definition, those distributors have boots on the ground. They okay. also have books of hundreds, if not thousands of brands and SKUs. Right. So you know, the challenge for us is then capturing the hearts and minds of those people who have the relationships with the retailers and getting them excited about having, you know, this be the bottle that's in their bag for their day out in the market and for this to be the story that they're telling to people about, you know, something that they should make sure to pick up. So I would imagine getting them to taste is also a big part of it. Yeah. So speaking of taste, I noticed you did bring one of the original bottles. So I would, I'm going to take a little taste on the air of something that I've not tried yet. I'm very excited. Tell me again about what okay, this so is. Okay, so this is Bourbon Resolution. We released seven batches of bourbon on a very small scale between 2014 and 2017. Each one, as we do now, named after a up-and-coming thoroughbred right. just starting his or her career. And one of them, actually, we talked about this earlier yes. um, before we were on the air, but one of your horses that are named on the bottles was actually in the Preakness and the Belmont That's this year. That's right. Bourbon War. It was really exciting and particularly exciting because we are doing something that I don't think has been done much at all, which is doing a vertical series where we've taken a set of barrels, set them aside, and we're going to release them every year over the course of nine years. So you can actually follow this bourbon and we'll do it also with our rye as it ages from four years five years six years That's all the way up cool. through 12. Well I'm going to take a little taste so this is roughly nine years. This the bourbon resolution was released at nine years of age and 90 proof this was before we sort of realized that we could play with proof so all of the library which is what we call it which the are these flavors small releases, that are coming out at, are just 
really, really magical. It's it's a good Ooh, one for this sure. Is, this and is delicious. The, you know, because we had so few bottles of this, it went relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. When we realized we were onto something was when we would sell to liquor stores and they would decide that they weren't even going to put it on their shelves. Flatiron Wine and Spirits, which has stores right. in San Francisco and in here in Manhattan, is one of our most loyal, truest, long-standing supporters. And I walked in and I said, where's the pinhook? And they said, oh, I mean, we couldn't put it on the shelf because there would be a riot. (laughs) (laughs) So they would email their distribution list of bourbon fans and people would call and reserve their bottles and that would be that. That's what you want. You've created created this buzz. So there's this crazy secondary market and people are buying and selling this bottle, Bourbon Resolution, for, you know, $650. It was retailing for 60. That is the best bourbon that I have tasted. So certainly this year, that is, that oh, is I'm just so glad you really, like it, really delicious. And I will point out, my kids for Father's Day gave me these beautiful financially speaking mugs. Those on video see this, but, uh, and it tastes even beautiful in a mug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We traditionally yeah. haven't served mm-hmm. our bourbon in a mug, but we, right. could, we could try that. You never know. You never know. It's nice to have a handle, right? So what's next? So scotch was the rage for years, and then Don Draper started drinking old fashions again, and then the Pappy Van Winkle insanity started, and... There's a lot of wackiness there that we're not even going to go there. But now it seems rye, obviously, is very hot. You have this great one that I've tasted. So I guess you have to really stay on top of where the puck is going, kind of like Wayne Gretzky says. So what opportunities are you particularly excited about going forward? What we're most excited for right now is this moment when we will have our own distillate, meaning this recipe that we created with the yeast that we picked out, you know, when we will have that in the bottle. I mean, bourbon takes a little bit longer to be, I mean, I don't want to say drinkable. It's very drinkable. But I think bourbon takes longer to emerge um, than rye. The rye is incredible right now. And that was how many years, that rye? So we started distilling in 2017. So it's not even two and a half years old yet. And it's wonderful. I will point out to, uh, as people know, I mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk. Usually once a show, Wine Library in Springfield, New Jersey, does have this pinhook uh, rye as well as some of the other bourbons. So there are many other stores, but I I will mention that. So you're excited about... Well, so we're just excited to, to have our Castle and Key distill it. In the bottle next year, Castle and Key, you know, is making really, really special stuff on a very small scale with such um, thoughtfulness and and kind of just integrity about the entire process. We love working with them and we are lucky enough to have, you know, broad distribution. So people have been looking forward to tasting the things coming out of Castle and Key and while they'll have some of their own product, it won't be as widely available. And so we're excited to be able to kind of amplify that and and to, you know, it marks a new era for us in many right. ways. While the packaging and the product will say the same, you know, we think that we're taking even a step up in terms of the quality of what's inside the bottle. So that's one thing. I'm really excited as a woman about convincing other women that this is a drink to get behind. What percentage of women CEOs are there in the bourbon industry? You know what? More than you would think. Mm -hmm. I would think. Certainly, if you're better tasters, it makes sense. Uh, Right? But 
I mean, certainly it's a category that is very male-oriented and male-dominated. In the past, but I have noticed, at least amongst my friends, how many of my friends' wives are really enjoying bourbon. And my wife, for example, I would have never in a million years guessed that she would have gotten as into it, and maybe even more than me, and just really loves it and, and loves tasting and loves trying different ones. Yeah, yeah, and I find that too much, that it's really about getting people to try it. Right. It's so it's I, I there are very few people who you know I rarely will give even a straight pour but certainly right. a cocktail to you know a no, this female friends this is too good for a cocktail <laughs> well you know what we didn't talk about that yeah. but I want to mention that we also in talking about you know the decisions we made and how we go to market one thing that we're also really proud of is we made a very concerted decision when we decided that we wanted to be accessible, meaning we wanted to be on the shelf, sure. not not secret right. in, mm-hmm. in the back, and right. we wanted to be available in many more states, that we wanted to be accessible also in price. So our core product, the bourbon and the rye, we're not creating any sort of false scarcity mm-hmm. around it. And we are pricing it so it appears on the shelf between 35 and $40. Which, you know, as a bourbon drinker, and I have to tell you, is extremely reasonable. I mean, there are bourbons that are charging $69, $70 that consider themselves craft bourbons that claim that they're from one state and they're actually from another that just aren't worth it. But they created this buzz, so to speak. And to be honest with you, I would have definitely guessed this would have been more in the 79 or more. Yeah, and we have some sort of expressions. So the cast strength expression. I'm sure everyone has their different items. But our core product is meant to be available year round. Mm -hmm. And it's meant to be available at a price that means that you can put it in a cocktail. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's not the birthday bourbon that okay. you must covet and hold aside for only the most special of guests and occasions. We want people to enjoy Pinhook. Well, this show will air after July 4th, but we are having people over and they will be having Pinhook cocktails. For those that don't want to drink it straight, I will be drinking it straight, but if they want to have it in the cocktail. So one of the things before we end that I noticed from our first conversation and, and now from meeting you is how passionate you are about this and how just such joy and excitement. Obviously, you're having a lot of fun with this. Yes, very much so. I mean, on... An unexpected fun, right? Unexpected. Not something you ever saw yourself. Unexpected You weren't a little girl sitting there (laughs) dreaming, watching dad drinking the old fashions or, you know, I don't know, just going to the Don Draper thing again, but... No. I mean, I was... Or James Bond. Let's let's be fair. James, uh, Sean Connery was, I think, Jim Beam, if I recall. Uh, He was always drinking... When he wasn't drinking the, you know, the, the vodka, the martinis. No, I am a proud lover of American whiskey. Rye is my favorite, but I have had plenty of bourbon in my day. And that being said, was mildly supportive of you know this project that my husband took on with our sure. good friends and I really got involved in the business to help him I happened to have just left a job right. at Memorial Sloan Kettering mm-hmm. so nothing to do with right right and you know he had his own day job so I really did it as a favor and it's just been so fun learning about something new I think as we all do 
to be involved in something that I can see and sort of touch and understand every step of the production process, right? It's very concrete. It's really been such a pleasure to get to work closely with good, good friends who are so immensely talented. And it's really fun to, to make something that people enjoy. Having a brand and being part of a brand and connecting with people through that. Any tips for any great entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about this industry? I mean, the hard thing about this industry is the time that it requires, right. meaning that you... You don't just make bourbon and sell it the next day. No. Yeah. So if that is what you're looking to do, vodka and you know tequila, although apparently there's an agave shortage, like those would be probably better places to go. So you have to have time on your side. And so that's a thing. The other side of that, though, is that your inventory is appreciating as opposed to depreciating. (laughs) And so it's kind of makes it feel a little bit safer, right? You have these barrels of bourbon are, you know, it's not like a designer dress that is a particular point of view for a particular season. They're increasing as age and they have value to people other than you, right? You could, you especially in this day and age and especially after a terrible fire Mm -hmm. in the industry last night where 45,000 barrels were destroyed Destroyed. Where was that exactly? I, I saw that this morning. Where in Kentucky was that? I don't remember. Yeah. I'm not sure yeah. oh, I, it, I know whether it, it was I, in Bardstown just... or... So for someone who's not particularly risk-friendly right. like myself, probably fair to say that I'm usually risk-adverse, mm-hmm. it's a nice feeling to know that your investment could be liquidated and you would come out ahead, right? Right, There exactly. are a few places where a liquidation is a profitable event. So... It's great, and there are so many kind, nice people who are, there was so much history and dedication. The history of bourbon is fascinating, and I'm actually going to plug a book that I read recently, which is just great. It's called Bourbon, the Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of an American Whiskey by Fred Minnick, who I think actually writes for the Wall Street Journal and many other publications. And, you know, I thought I knew everything about bourbon, and I I learned so much. Yeah, he's the real deal. And it's such a pretty book, right? Oh, beautiful, beautiful book. And just so people know, Elijah Craig did not invent bourbon. He was a reverend in the 1600s. And for some reason, he's credited with it, but he didn't. So Alice, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing not only this amazing pinhook bourbon and rye, but but your wisdom and your experience with my listeners. And we'll, of course, we will be linking to pinhook.com. Again, folks, you can't just order the bourbon there, but you put in your zip code and we'll tell you where the closest location is to get some, including the restaurants in your neighborhood, as well as the stores and any other links that, w- that we think make sense. So in the end, as Fred Minnick, who wrote this book, talked about, he said, bourbon is the spirit that was American born, fought for attention and largely stayed true to its recipes and heritage. It may have died in prohibition only to come back to life in 1934 and struggled till it landed that uppercut in 64 and really revived in 2008. In my opinion, the only thing that can stop a further rise in bourbon is the effort to make bourbon something it is not. Hopefully it will not go light or flavored. It is not vodka as we talked about before. Bourbon must stay bourbon and rye must stay rye, sweet and precious. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you to Resonate Recording for post-production. Gave you a little extra work, uh, those these guys. And everyone at UBS, especially fellow bourbon lover Sean Kennedy, for helping make this program possible. And remember, 
When it comes to saving for your future, with or without bourbon, pay yourself first. Have a great week.